Hey, and welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Hey, this is not hitting right. Double, double. That's better. All right. There we go. We're good. Hey, wow. Uh, hey, this is, of course, the podcast where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Rob Minot. And joining me today, see, this is, uh, I don't know what to do now after last week. I, I mean, and joining me today is Ryan Fleury, Steve Barkley, and Liz Malone. There we are. Yay. I'm number two. I'm number two. <laughs> See, I can't win. I really can't win. It doesn't matter. I'm going to need, I need a, like some sort of a random number generator. I don't know who to introduce first now, now that everybody, I don't know. I'd, maybe, maybe we're going to have to get the audience involved and just, have, just vote on who the order should be. And let's let the audience decide because it's too much pressure for me because no matter what, <laughs> someone's going to be mad at me. Why don't we just start alternating who does the intro each week? Fine. <laughs> and at some point, we'll all be number one. All right. Well, okay. We can do that. We'll start next week. Okay, but Liz isn't here next week, so she's number not here. Nothing. <laughs> oh, sure. I'll be starting your policy when Liz is MIA. <laughs> All right. Anyway. Anyways, how's everybody? Great. How are you, Rob? Well, I'm good. I mean, yeah. Excellent. Steve, how are you? I'm just absolutely spiffy. And Liz, how about you? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Not a sp not spiffy, but uh, uh, aspiring for it. And she's, you know what? She's spunky today. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, you are. You, you Before the mics came on, you're, you're shot out of a cannon. <laughs> uh, me? No. Yes. Should have heard her before you got here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this morning before work, I was going through my list of podcasts that I look at pretty much daily and saw that our friend of the show, John Grimes, from the Ambiguously Blind podcast, this week's episode, he had our very own Liz Malone as his guest on the show. And a couple things I wanted to bring up. First was, at the end of the show... <laughs> John offered Liz a chance to smack talk us, and she didn't do it. What? She didn't take the bait. Oh, and I outrageous. was like, that's not Liz. She would have <laughs> taken the bait. But she didn't. She had nothing bad to say about us. Really? I, I was impressed. Are you sure? Did it sound like her? Like maybe? It sounded, it sounded better than her. She sounded sure? better there than she does here. Are you was sure it, it wasn't ChatGPT? That's right? what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it was the AI version of Liz? It could have been, yeah. But it was a very good interview. I rec highly recommend everyone go and take a listen to that. John did a great job, and so did Liz. Thank goodness he didn't ask me to spell ambiguously, because I would have failed that spelling test. Oh, I know. I'd still get it wrong. <laughs> and then the second... No, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it was a great show. And then the second thing I wanted to ask you about, because you've never shared this story with us, was living in New York, you said you fell into a sidewalk cellar? Mm, yeah. What is yeah. a sidewalk cellar? Is that like a sewer? Do you ever see, if, if you ever go into New York City, you'll see these like double metal doors that are usually like padlocked on the sidewalk. 
and they they actually fold up and then they there's like a like a staircase that'll okay. go down into the depths of the cellar and um if you walk when you're walking on the sidewalk sometimes like when you step on one like they'll dip down a little bit and you get that everyone freaks out like oh my god right. like they think it's gonna go out from underneath them so they actually did an episode of sex in the city where one of the characters fell into a sidewalk cell and of course it was funny right. let me just tell you not so funny in real life <laughs> oh yeah well i was wondering if you had a, an alternate life as a mole person or something that you haven't shared with us yet <laughs> no i i full-on stepped in and then you have that moment where you feel nothing underneath your foot and it yeah. just keeps going down and there's just absolutely you know it, it just happens so fast and i remember i just like threw my arms up and i grabbed i managed to grab the handle and i'm hanging there by one arm and oh, like and a bystander was like oh my god you look like karen <laughs> allen in raiders of the lost arch hanging by one arm over the snake pit crazy yeah it was pretty nuts crazy so i, we don't, rec I new. don't recommend it yeah. no so that was something something new I learned about you. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I see. My my brush with death. That's right. Wonder yeah. Well, I wonder how much else she's holding back on us. How come she shared that on somebody else's show? <laughs> Interesting. We we haven't had a show on near death experience. <laughs> Maybe John just asks the right questions. I, don't I know. guess so. Yeah. Well, there you go. I get some tips from him. Yep, indeed. <laughs> How do we talk to Liz? Because we don't know. <laughs> How do you get something interesting out of Liz? <laughs> How do you get past all the piss and vinegar right? <laughs> right. to the real person? <laughs> right. uh, all right. Well, Ryan. Yeah, Rob. I think we should figure out uh, just what the heck we are doing today. All right. Well, today we are talking with Dr. Rihanna Robinson, who is an assistant professor at the University of Northern British Columbia. And there's a whole lot more to this title here that I'm not going to have my screen reader try to read. I'll let her introduce more about herself. But Rihanna, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's my pleasure to be here this late afternoon. Yeah, we are. Listen, we are very excited to have you on. Uh, so thank you again for taking some time out of this late afternoon uh, to come talk with us. So maybe we could just start with giving us just a little bit of background about yourself and um, and what you're doing up there at, at UNBC. Sure. Thanks, Rob. Um, I'm joining you today from my home at on the traditional territory of the Tlaiti Nation in Prince George. And I've been living in Prince George for just over 20 years, but I was raised in the community of Smithers, just four hours northwest of here, the beautiful small town of Smithers. But I, I love the North. I've been here for a very long time, and I've had a long history with the University of Northern BC, including as an undergraduate and graduate student, and now an assistant professor in the Department of First Nation Studies. So I've been in my faculty position since 2016, and I've had an interesting evolution of my teaching interests, my research interests that have undeniably been influenced by my own life experiences and trajectory of myself as a person that lives with disability. So at this time, I am immersed in Indigenous disability related research, 
And it's really a, a, a very rewarding and interesting and an exciting space for me to be involved in through my, you know, my my personal and professional passion and what's really important to me. So maybe I'll just say a little bit more about my, my disability. Um, in 1997, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and about five, almost six years ago, I'm gonna say, it transitioned into a secondary progressive form of the health condition. So I live with significant mobility limitations and as my disability has accumulated, it really prompted me to realize some of the gaps that exist in research and academic literature, and particularly the representation of how Indigenous peoples traditionally perceive disability and experience it in our contemporary world. Um, I'm a mom of two uh, teenage boys that keeps me very busy as well. So I have a busy and very fulfilling life here in Northern British Columbia. So thanks again for having me today. Why don't we start, because there's so much, I, honestly, I have so much on the list of, to, to talk to you about, but maybe we can start with um, talking a little bit about that the difference in perspective of disability between Western culture and First Nations culture, because I, I I did a little bit of reading uh, of some articles that you had written and that you had participated in, and I found it really fascinating. So maybe we can start there and, and sort of maybe give us a, a, an idea of what some of those differences are. Sure. It's interesting because, um, like I mentioned, when I first started exploring this from an academic position, I was seeing that there was just like uh, you know, there just was not a substantive, you know, resource based of research that has been done with Indigenous peoples about traditional perspectives of disability, and how that was really represented in community. And I found that very um, shocking, to say the least. And I knew it was something I needed to explore more. So there isn't, um, you know, there just is not a plentiful space of literature that's available, but what I have been able to find and, and also just from my own more recent research experiences and my life experiences generally, is that there is a distinct difference with how Indigenous peoples have perceived disability amongst their nation members and within the context of their communities. So disability in itself, I have come to understand, and this in part is myself growing up as an Indigenous person. I don't think I acknowledge that I'm Métis and I'm a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation. And if I did, I apologize for repeating myself twice. But, you know, there is a distinct um, awareness on my own part now that disability in itself is a, a very much a colonial and Western construct. And Indigenous peoples traditionally did not look at disability in a deficit-orientated framework, nor did it was it labeled in a, a context with a singular defined term that would relegate them to a particular um, space of, um, of inclusion in their community. You know, a lot of Indigenous communities, languages do not have a word for disability in the traditional language. And that, to me, speaks volumes of the need for there being more exploration and understanding of how Indigenous peoples were including and valuing people that were living with difference and um, 
able-bodied or not. So it has been a, a very important part of my research to come to a space of understanding how Indigenous peoples are are, are, are not being represented in disability-related literature and scholarship. So it's something I'm really committed to um, amplifying and mobilizing more prominently in academic discourse. Do we see parallels today and, and sort of how, how it's perceived you know, among the, the Indigenous community? So what I will say is that there is an acknowledgement that there has been an interruption of how Indigenous peoples traditionally included those with difference, those with disability in their community. And traditionally, Indigenous peoples with disability were part of the community regardless of their able-bodiedness or, or not. And there's been an interruption of that. So if, and from a traditional context, and some of what my research is telling me and elders have, have shared, is that people were um, looked at as, as encapsulating and, and holding and having a gift to offer the community, that their, that their difference actually was a, a way that they were able to share their experience of being in the world that was different than those that didn't have those differences, that didn't have that disability. And it really offered a breadth and a gift of understanding different experiences and communication and relationship with one another. You know, for Indigenous peoples, health is encapsulated on so many different levels. It's, you know, it's about your relationship with the land, about your relationship with each other. It's about your relationship with the spirit world and your relationship with culture. All of those things compartmentalize into a healthy and unanimous and, um, you know, a very holistic sphere of belonging and representation. So disability as a, as a construct didn't exist um, singularly. So that very individualistic paradigm that we have within the Western societal construct is, um, is, is definitely not something that's being represented in my research or what I'm finding in the literature. You know, it's, it's absolutely true that, you know, in Western culture, it is very much an isolating experience. We, you know, we, with, with disability, we immediately put people into sort of, you know, a different bucket from everybody else immediately, just through that label. You know, we, we talk all the time about the disability community and, and the importance of, of things like social networks and because it, it gives people in the community a chance to connect with each other, which is great, but it's still, it's, it's separate. It's like these separate yes. communities. And it seems yeah. to me that, that that must be such a Western way of thinking. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you, Rob. And, you know, there's, um, there's a, you know, one of the, one of the things that I talk to my students about this often, you know, even considering the different models of disability that exist in the world for um, the conceptualization of like what disability should look like, how it should be included, how it could be quote unquote managed. And, you know, the medical model of disability is one I always gravitate to as an example of it being so in opposition at how Indigenous communities would look, because the medical model really looks at me like there's something wrong with me that needs to be fixed. 
And, um, you know, the literature talks about how, because I can't, there's no cure for multiple sclerosis, there's management for it, but I might have a progressive condition of it, I'm only going to get worse. Um, it sort of labels me and puts me categorically in a space that's deterministic in nature that sort of lends me to a space that I can never be perceived as being equal as those without this disabling condition. And I have a serious problem with that. So, um, you know, there doesn't exist an Indigenous model of disability. And it's something that I'm really committed to um, mobilizing further in my research, because I do believe that Indigenous communities have much to teach us about how we need to be rethinking and reconceptualizing how disability can be um, included within our within our society, within our our common spaces with each other, within our schools, within our all of our systems of of where we are and and how we need to be having relationships with one another. So it's it's. Again, it's 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 really been a, a very enriching and rewarding space for me to be involved in. I'm curious. In historically speaking, are are there examples of of um, indigenous people with disabilities, um, you know, being specifically mentioned and how they how they interacted with their societies? Well, there 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 are, and there there's not a lot. There's not. I wish there was more. But um, there are definitely some, there's emerging literature that's that's coming internationally. I've been really drawn to a scholar, a historian out of the United States, Dr. Susan Birch. And she's just recently published a book in late 2021 about um, an insane asylum that was established in the United States in the early 1900s, where Indigenous peoples were being um, taken from their communities and put in this insane asylum that was, you know, deplorable and many people perished in it. But her research is really demonstrating how removing peoples with difference that were perceived as not able-bodied by settler communities was really taking away um, important and absolutely imperative knowledge holders from communities. These were the medicine people. These were the people that were offering a gift to the community. And it really interrupted that intergenerational transmission of knowledge, that representation of culture, and again, that sphere of relationship and what that meant to have a communal, communal representation of everyone, regardless of able-bodiedness or not or the perception of able-bodiedness or not. You know, here we are fighting for things like inclusion. Mm -hmm. And it, it strikes me as really interesting because, you know, we wouldn't have to be fighting for inclusion if we didn't put people with disabilities into a different bucket immediately. Like, it's really that sort of systemic change in perspective that needs to happen. We need to look at things in a very different way. And that's why I think that that you know doing studies is important because we we need to understand that the way that we are viewing things is not necessarily the only way to look at it and certainly uh not the best way to look at it i i agree and you know i like i have my own struggles that i still battle daily internalized ableism the shame the stigma 
the, you know, I always say that, you know, yes, I have lots of <laughs> struggles with, you know, environmental built environment barriers, but my, my biggest struggle is definitely with that of an attitudinal barrier. And, you know, my, my living with MS was not something I shared for many, many, many years until I absolutely had to. And even within that framework, I was very, you know, cloaked in a space of fear and uncertainty. And again, that shame that I, you know, really have to contend with on a daily basis. And I do, but, you know, it's, um, I, I, I think it doesn't have to be this way. And I'm, I'm really finding this really important space of um, support and, uh, and a representation of a different way of me being able to see myself because indigenous peoples don't are like already, they, there's already that um, space of, you know, grappling with, you know, race and um, the marginalization of that, but also the marginalization of disability. It's, it's a, it's a compounding experience that um, is something to reflect on. It's important. Well, and that's a, that's a good segue because something else that I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about and we've we've touched on it in the podcast, but we really haven't dug into it too much. But it's this idea of intersectionality. So it, maybe if you could just uh, to give a like a bit of a brief overview of what we mean when we talk about intersectionality, just for the audience, and then we can sort of step into sort of what some of the the impacts of that can be, both from your own lived experience and and just kind of what you've learned. Sure, you know, intersectionality was a, it was a term coined in the late 1980s by Kimberly Crenshaw and it was really, you know, trying to amplify and have a representation to understand the in, those intersectional spaces between um race, class, gender and other other individual characteristics that one may be living with and what that can look like in a world where there is um these underrepresented and marginalized peoples that are trying to ensure that they are rightfully finding their place in the world and having opportunity and having a voice and having a space of understanding. So intersectionality is something that I've seen emerge really strongly in um, the academic sphere that I'm in and at a university. And I, I'm, I'm seeing so many ways that people are identifying how their own intersectional lived experiences are indeed impacted by, you know, the historical realities that we have in our world. So for my own lived experience, it's definitely become something that I acknowledge outright. And I've tried to unapologetically um, place it as something that I do embody and represent and what some of those histories are that are aligned with my intersectionality as a, a, a female indigenous disabled person. Um, you know, there is a, a reality that um, a lot of histories have been silenced. And I think that indigenous history, disability history, they're no exception. And so part of my work is really to change that entire representation and just have a have a different space for voice and understanding. Brianna, one thing that I do feel that we that we share is, as you were just discussing, the intersectionality is that 
you and I both are um, of ethnicity. Uh, we have both faced in our own individual ways, different forms of isms beyond the ableism and probably it predated the, um, the, the feelings of internalized ableism. So, and I guess what, what the, the point I'm trying to make is that in my personal lived experience, I almost feel that the fact that I have had to overcome racism and the feelings and the, and the comments and the things that have been projected onto to me in a lot of ways helped prepare me to face the ableist views that I face as a, a person who lives with a disability. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that as well. It's a really, really um, important and interesting space to talk about, you know, because I've had this, I've had this really, this really important life experience where on the one hand with my identity, identity being a Métis woman, I've really held on to that strongly. And I fought every single way to not be quote unquote assimilated into sort of a mainstream platform of representation. However, simultaneously, as my disability has evolved, and I've had this dramatic evolving lens of disability, I have fought so hard to not, you know, to be assimilated, to, to just be considered in a sort of uh, a, a sort of an equal space, I'm going to say, and representation where I didn't want to have that um, label associated with me. So it's been this, I've, I've talked with my students about this, this tug of war that I've sort of had with those two spaces of identity that I live with. And it's um, something I'm still trying to uh, intellectualize, I'm going to say, because I'd like to write about this a bit more because I think it's really important. And I don't think I'm the only person that may find themselves within that space of trying to understand how I'm still fitting into uh, you know, a representation of who I am and what I'm bringing and offering to the world through these lived experiences. So trying to trying to manage that sort of those two spheres of understanding myself um, with those different spaces of, of identity, um, I'm going to say it hasn't been an easy road for me, but I, I'm, I'm working through it. And Undeniably, my my research is is helping me along the way, and just me being able to understand more distinctly some of the historical influences that have brought me to these places of having that tug of war, and that's definitely a, an important part of my my life experience and my lived reality. So, in, in terms of this field. It, is this sort of an evolving field? Is this something that more and more people are beginning to talk about? Are you starting to see some some traction in, in and conversations happening in this space? Oh, Rob, I'm seeing so much. I, I get so much outreach from people. It's been really, it's been so humbling. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the interest from community and for people wanting to talk to me about what I'm, what I'm reading, um, what I'm learning, what I'm researching. It's been, it's been, it's been utterly utterly impactful for me and it tells me that I'm doing I'm doing the right thing and that I'm raising a, a profile that needs to be represented. 
so yes, it's indigenous disability study, studies categorically as an academic um, program doesn't really exist. I mean, it does exist on the periphery. I'm finding of a lot of other places, unless I'm missing it, which I don't think I am, but it's really something the the representation of the indigenous, um, you know, the indigenous perspectives is definitely starting to evolve and emerge more prominently. And it's really, it's really exciting for me. Well, and that's why I'm glad you reached back out to us because probably for about a year and a half, if not longer, I've been trying to find a guest from the Indigenous community to come on and talk about Indigenous persons and persons okay. with disabilities. And there's been nobody reached back out to me. So, you know, just the fact that you, you did and can talk openly and honestly about it means, means the world. And I'm sure there's people who will get something out of this conversation. Thanks, Ryan. And you know, Indigenous peoples are definitely overrepresented over with disability in Canada. And you know, I strongly believe it's aligned so um, directly to colonization and the impacts and what's happened with community and um, to Indigenous peoples. But that representation it's it's so ironic that while there's that very um that that distinctly larger representation of ind indigenous peoples with disabilities but there's not it's it, the indigenous perspectives aren't largely represented in the literature or in policy or practice so i'm really hoping that sort of my research can start to influence that and Ultimately, I my my entire philosophy about moving forward with my research and, and working with community is about building relationships. And I really find strength in that. And I find strength in being able to profile the voices of those that um, haven't yet to be heard. Yeah, you know, there's lots happening, right? We have things happening at a federal level. We have things happening at provincial levels across our country, like legislatively. Mm -hmm. And this is this is really, I think, timing is is it's really important that we take opportunities to um, be able to share, you know, a diverse diverse experiences and diverse perspectives in this regard. Well, if you want to be included, you got to speak up. Right. Yeah, so, it's true. It's yeah. true. Well, that that was something that I did read that I, that I was actually kind of surprised at is that you know Stats Canada had this um, a survey that they did straight up that Indigenous people are experiencing higher rates of disability than mm -hmm. non-Indigenous, and the fact that we, you know, and we've been doing this this podcast for like six years, and you know we've talked to tons of of different organizations, and we haven't, you know, we had to really struggle to try to find. Um, someone to come on and talk uh, about it. And so I'm just wondering from, you know, in terms of, of, of resources and accessing uh, healthcare and support services, like what what does that kind of look like for Indigenous folks right now? And there are there a lot of barriers, I guess? Well, indeed, there's um, barriers that exist within, you know, the healthcare system generally for Indigenous peoples. Like that, there's there's ample research out there that that um, identifies barriers related to, um, you know, racism and. Um, and then there's the geographical barriers for really remote communities and peoples with disabilities that are in those remote locations and what that may um, may include for them. So it's it, it but it does, you know, it does really it makes me think about how how important it is that 
the categorically disability is represented um, very boldly. I, I often find that disability is not overly, um, you know, it's just not, it's just not overly represented as a as a as a bold sort of space of acknowledgement and understanding. And so trying to trying to trying to include that in a way when contemplating how Indigenous peoples um, their own experiences with the healthcare system generally are being articulated, I think is it deserves more attention and deserves more research and awareness. Yeah, I think that's really key. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought up geographic uh, challenges because, yeah, and I, we, when we've talked about that um, on the show in terms of it can be a real challenge for people who, especially in a province like British Columbia, that's, mm -hmm. that's very large, it can be really hard to access resources when you're in whatever, you're in Fort St. John or, yeah. uh, you know, all, all of these sort of, you know, remote communities. It, it, there, there isn't a heck of a lot of resources for folks that that uh, may need them, and maybe we need to look at how we we are delivering resources and 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 work that out. Yeah, I mean, I'm I always I always feel so so lucky that I grew up in northern BC and. You know, and I've traveled our entire, actually I've traveled our entire country and there's so many places that I, you know, um, prior to me being so, so much more disabled physically, um, I would, I would have such difficulty being there now. Um, and I'm thinking more prominently in like the very north, northwestern areas of the province. And I, I, I really feel that, you know, this is this is a reality that uh, is not well understood and it's just it's not well acknowledged. So there's you know, these these are things that we have to think about as a as a society and we have to be, you know, more we have to be more um, understanding and respectful to these to these differences and what that looks like. So I guess in, in your mind what sort of needs to happen to sort of break down some of these barriers and and really sort of start to move some of these issues forward? Well, I'm really hoping that through my, you know, through my work, through my research, my scholarship, my teaching, um, there starts to be, a, you know, a ripple effect of some of these conversations. And there starts to be a larger investment towards funding new initiatives that are going to be exploring these areas of research and these areas of understanding because of course disability is multifaceted and it it there's so many ways that we could be we could be we could be providing a new platform of representation and a new understanding of how peoples are being included in the consideration of what we need to think about when we contemplate disability and its impact on communities and indigenous communities in particular. So it's I, I think it's really important that we're um we're being more bold, I guess I'll I'll say, and how we and how we um try to move forward with this. So I've lived with MS for almost 30 years. And you know, as someone who is indigenous living with multiple sclerosis, I very early on started to see that I wasn't um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing myself, let's say, um, represented, you know, in the doctor's offices and seeing the neurologist and, you know, in different, different visits that I was having, 
But I really knew because of where I live, I live in Northern BC, I knew that Indigenous people do live with MS. And for a long time, I was really told that my MS was, I'm, I'm Métis, so my father is non-Indigenous and my mother is Métis, but I was, I was being told that the MS is likely coming from my European ancestry. And I've just always felt that that is not something I totally was aligning my the belief of where my MS is, was coming from, um, was situated. And so my, my another part of my research that I'm really trying to, to um, move forward right now as well is being able to have a representation of Indigenous peoples living with multiple sclerosis and what that looks like for us and how it's, um, you know, progressing for us, how it is... Uh, you know, how we are having uh, similar opportunities for clinical trials, for um, being able to access uh, different medications and support systems. So it really lends to a similar conversation about disability amongst uh, rural and remote Indigenous communities and for Indigenous peoples. But I know uh, the multiple sclerosis profile uh, is, is something that it needs to be amplified. You know, Data is really important to have in a lot of a lot of these spaces and because it does inform so much. And it's important, you know, for me personally, at a very personal level, that I'm seeing a representation and an understanding of the um, you know, of, of how Indigenous peoples are living with multiple sclerosis and where there are, you know, higher incidences, lower incidences. I think all of all of that information is really critical to inform, you know, inf again, inform research and inform ultimately for me finding a cure for for the disease. Do they have a really good idea of some of those numbers like has there been a lot of research yet or this is all still just now it's it's starting to get going it's just starting to get going i actually i was I'm really fortunate to be a co-author on a paper um with some other uh, other authors on the incidence and prevalence of of ms amongst indigenous peoples in the americas and you know it's it's something that is emerging and we really need to be having more of an investment in that understanding. There's some really interesting studies that are happening in Canada, but I'd love to see even more. I'd love to see just a larger representation. And I think this is important, you know, because it does, research does inform so much when it comes to policy and, um, and program development and support systems. So I, I see this for me, it's at a very, very personal level. I see it as something critical. And yeah. pretty timely, you know, with all the other awareness that's emerging with disability related, um, you know, conversations and understanding. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, although I'm of two minds of it, you know, on the one hand, like I'm, I'm with you, I'm thrilled that, that this is all happening. But then, you know, the other side of your, your brain kind of goes, you know, it's kind of angry that it's taken this long and that it's only this, these things are only starting to happen now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I was I was a teenager when I was diagnosed with MS. And I remember thinking I was only I was only 19 when I was diagnosed. I had symptoms earlier on, but I was I remember thinking even then I'm like, oh, in 10 years, you know, they're gonna find something. It's gonna be okay. I'm gonna be fine. 
And, you know, as I've lived with the disease and I've been very aware, I'm very well read on the research. I know what's going on. I know that people are working so hard to try and find, you know, answers for a cure. And I think that, you know, the, in terms of, of, of having a particular um, representation of different population groups living with, um, living with MS and, and especially for the indigenous population, it just hasn't been, there just has not been that prominent of a of a research study that's gone forward so yeah i'm hoping that something happens changing perspectives on the way that we that we view things doesn't happen overnight and i get that but uh boy you know when you're an advocate it's it's frustrating yeah it's um i feel you know i always tell everybody i I feel so lucky that I'm a professor and I get to do this research and it's my passion. It's stuff I love. And, you know, so I get to kind of be really immersed in, in so much of, of, um, of the, of the literature and the research that's going on. So I feel really lucky that I'm, I'm at that, I'm in that space where I can sort of mobilize different things that are, that are important to me. Right. So I'm, yeah, so I'm really, I'm taking advantage of that. So if if there are people out there that that are interested in learning more, um, do you are there resources that you can kind of point them to? Yeah, I mean, I've been really um, I've been really lucky and I felt very, very privileged that I've had so much outreach from different organizations, you know, the Rick Hansen Foundation and and I'm a director for the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Canada, MS Canada. Um, and, you know, so there is definitely you know, there is definitely an, an increased profile of um, me being able to find spaces where I'm having opportunity to share and to talk and to be represented, uh, you know, on social media, media platforms. But definitely, because this is still an emerging area of research, there are, you know, ways of people being able to see and and look at different you know, just different, I'm going to say conference opportunities or things that are happening with these other really prominent uh, allies and advocates across our country that are doing this work where they are including Indigenous peoples and they are including Indigenous perspectives. So it's it's definitely increasing. I, I'm really grateful that you reached out to me and I had this opportunity. I. I'm I'm really grateful. I think that you know there's there's a lot of you know there's a lot like I said this is emerging for me and it's it, it just it just deserves these like this this these conversations deserve different spaces and yeah. so I'm grateful for to have the opportunity. So thank you. Um, so if anyone out there is interested in in contacting you, uh, where can they do that? What's the best way to do that? Please look for me um, at the University of Northern British Columbia. So if you go on their website and you just type my name in, R-H-E-A-N-N-A-R-O-B-I-N-S-O-N, you'll be able to find my email and my phone number and feel free to contact me. Wonderful. Well, we once again want to thank you so much for for coming on. And um... wait, wait, wait. Oh my God! What? <laughs> I still need to know what her favorite fruit is. She never oh, answered. That's right. <laughs> you know what? She you said know, she didn't what? like fruit. You know what I do like? I like blueberries. Blueberries, I I can tolerate. I just oh, tolerate awesome. Fruit. Yeah. Perfect. My favorite too. Oh, a super fruit too. That. That's right. Yeah, are blueberries super fruit? Anti- it's like super a high antioxidant. Yeah. yeah. No, no kidding. Yeah. I had no idea. 
Yeah. Yeah. Huh. If you're going to eat a fruit, that's the one you should have. <laughs> taking, vit- taking vitamins. I don't know. Can you guys handle if I have an antioxidant as well? I, I, I don't know, can. Rob. You, you might, yeah, you might just completely go off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> having having subsisted entirely off of craft dinner and uh, and uh, Chef Boyardee all these times, I don't, all, I don't think a, a vitamin's of, a good idea for you. A lot of, those blueberries are going to have to do a lot of work. It's a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> we we got derailed again uh, the first time first time a superfood ever ran into its kryptonite <laughs> <laughs> all right well this was super fun you guys this was super fun thank you this was thank great. you so are, are, and are all of you guys in the lower mainland is that where you're living? no three of us are so oh. Liz, Liz is in north carolina North Carolina. Wow. I am. That's so awesome. Hey. And then Rob is in New Westminster, Steve's in Burnaby, okay. and I'm in Coquitlam. Okay. I was born in New Westminster. Oh, I love it here. Yes. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. We have this like massive geographic representation here. That's very cool. We, yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Liz is our, our North Carolina. I'm so the token we get, American. We get all the, <laughs> all the hurricane updates. <laughs> All the hurricane updates. Yeah, last summer she had a Chinese Weather spy balloon over her house. <laughs> Flooding. It's yeah, it's great. It's and all it's... happening down here in North Carolina. Oh my gosh. Oh well, you guys are lots of fun. So thank you for having me. This was really this was great. Awesome. All Appreciate right. you Thanks for bringing on. your perspective. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Have a good evening. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Rihanna. Bye bye. Right, good night. Bye. bye. Oh, that was so, that's really interesting. I love it. I'm so relieved that we finally got somebody to, to come in and talk about this because it obviously this is a, a field that really needs um, some attention and some awareness. Yeah, I'm really happy to hear that it's it's starting to happen. Be nice to, nice to see a better public perspective around um, disability in the Indigenous community because I know yep. for years it seems the only thing that we ever hear about here for you know with respect to that is when for example somebody who who's uh, indigenous and has cp um, can't get help because you know people are just assuming they're drunk yeah right? it's you know not even considering that it, it could be disability yeah you know it, it's um it, it's unfortunate and and uh, it's definitely something that needs to change uh, a lot of people are, you know, in all spread throughout the province in in very sort of remote locations, and uh, there's no resources there. Yeah, they're starting to get more um, certainly assistive technology resources available, but I'm not sure what the awareness is of it now. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, you know, I think that that's you know again that's going to be a really big thing is to really you know get some awareness, but there's just so much work to be done. Yep, we got yeah. a ways. Yeah, but it's happening. It's but happening. There's good people doing the work, so that's that's, that's great news. That's right. Yeah. Unlike us, who can't even find our Instagram password, <laughs> <laughs> let alone solve any any societal problems. Instagram's dead. We don't need Instagram. No, we're gonna. I'm telling you, there's gonna be a, a triumphant reemerging of our Instagram account. I've already got it planned out. Really. 
Radio. Yeah, we were gonna go for. Bre- I was gonna bring my camp. Well, I was gonna bring. My- I was Nobody gonna wants some- to see me eating pancakes. Yes, I they do. I want to see you eating pancakes. <laughs> they do. Our our audience demands it, Ryan. So really, but watch. Yeah. We we'll go for breakfast, and then the jerk won't order order pancakes. pancakes. That's right. That's okay. I would whatever. Prefer to see you hula hooping, but I'll take pancakes. <laughs> uh, let's see. How about hula hooping while eating pancakes? Well, oh my I god! Was... I don't think my little brain can handle all that. Too much Instagram stimulation. Gold. <laughs> <laughs> With glitter wow. and spangles playing in the background. <laughs> Listen, I would open a TikTok account just to post that. <laughs> And it would go viral. It <laughs> probably would, too. It probably would. <laughs> our our would. numbers would skyrocket. It'd be like, what the hell happened? Yeah. Oh, my. When well, are we doing our anniversary show? I haven't booked it yet, but it's in May. It's May sometime. Please, after May 6th. Yes, it'll be around middle, probably third week in May. Okay, cool. Why after yeah. May 6th? Because uh, that's our gala, it's a blind beginnings gala, so... It's just, yeah, this couple. hectic time for Rob. It's also, it's my birthday. May 6th? On May 6th? Yeah. That's my brother's mm-hmm. birthday. Oh, it's the day before my wife's birthday. Oh, my God. And it's when freaking King Charles is going to become king. Really? Yeah. I was like, oh. how dare he? Have to On my birthday? Gala. Usurping your birthday? My goodness. I think yeah. that's so rude because it will no longer be my birthday. It's going to be like King Charles Day. You well, know? It's a, no, it's, it's good, not. Well, it's a good thing that you're rebel scum then, huh? <laughs> for sure yeah yeah was, is anybody really gonna care when king it was Charles a brits I, I i certainly don't i don't i mean is anybody gonna tune into that i mean it's not really all that interesting millions mo- of people will tune into it the monarchy is a wasted institution i think they will i don't think anyone cares about prince charles oh they like, don't no but they'll tune in yeah all right well oh, i guess yeah. we'll see We'll Everyone's see. just going to see if Harry and Meghan show up. Yeah, probably. Mm. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. Monarchs. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that's good about new, for this new, week. <laughs> hello to all our new listeners from England. <laughs> We're just tuning out. We love all of you. <laughs> blimey. That blimey. I don't know. I can't do an English accent. Um, I don't know anything else to. Why does England not have a hockey team? Why does what? They do. They're terrible. Oh, do they? Yeah. Okay. Wait, who who doesn't have a hockey team? England. Is there a national hockey team in England? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. They have soccer. I know, like Finland's got teams, Sweden's got teams, but. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good. There's Slovakia, Czechoslovakia. Like they're all at the the juniors and stuff, but. Um, I don't know. I think they London? got their hands full with trying York? to figure out how to Kent. play cricket. <laughs> Complicated sport. You ever tried to figure out how cricket works? No. Very confusing. It, it, it's got to be explained. Yeah, it's really... I still don't know. I had someone explain it to me and I still don't understand it. Were you going to take up cricket or why were you interested? I Listen, I had... One of those things where I just thought, I don't know, <laughs> live, learn I live my entire life and I have no idea what this cricket thing's about. So, Is that yeah, with, yeah. The, with the ball and those hammer things? Uh, like? No, they have like, well, like Wait, they, they have big Which paddles. Like they, they, have a, they have a bat. Yeah. A but it's not, like a, it's not like a bat bat. It's like a paddle. Right. 
and then someone throws a ball underhand and I don't know. Then from there, I don't know what happens. So, so they hit the ball and something, something. They, they got to hit a wicket or something. Ugh. Yeah, it sounds, it's crazy. Clearly, mm. clearly invented by a bunch of drunks in the 1700s. <laughs> wow. And just for your information here, uh, Great Britain, according to the International oh, Ice right. Hockey yes. Federation, is ranked 18th. Yes, Great Britain in the has world. a team. That's correct. Oh, you just didn't recognize them at the Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! What? Just slagging our English yeah, co- English fans over that? there across the pond. Why you say England doesn't have my a team? It's like, oh yeah, okay, that's UK, it's Great it's Britain. It's crap on the UK day. <laughs> well, <laughs> Listen, I mean, you do have to admit it's kind of cringy now you think about it. Second Tuesday of every month is now crap on a country. Well, get get it out of your system for the UK because my uh, my nephew's showing up from Northern Ireland May first. So. Listen, Ireland's cool, but it's just great. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Northern Ireland is part of Great Britain. I mean, it's part good, of the UK. Maybe good, Sorry, not Great good Britain. Britain. Pretty pretty decent Britain, maybe. You live in British Columbia. That yeah, is well, true. That is true, too. I wonder what that deal with that is. <laughs> Victoria, named after Queen Victoria. Yeah, we have Victoria Day coming up in May. Yeah. Uh, from, uh, I guess we're celebrating Queen Victoria's birthday still. So. so in May, we'll be loving all over the Commonwealth. Yeah. yeah. And don't forget your friends in... For... for what? Regina. Regina. She just went straight to. Don't not, forget your friends. Not Regina. Not vagina. Regina. I, I think I said it with a with a B, and that's why I was like, wait, Regina. that's not right. I was like, buh, buh. no, that's not right. Just remember, it rhymes with fun. It completely rhymes with fun. Uh... <laughs> So much editing to do oh. this week. <laughs> and I did it, did it to myself. Regina, oh, awesome. Regina. Yeah, there you go. Fun times. Yeah. All right. That's Fun enough. times in Regina. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I wonder if their. I wonder if their marketing team got fired over that. <laughs> I mean, it got them publicity. Yep. So That's really what matters. I mean, I don't people know. I wouldn't will, fire them. People will tour to Regina just to see the sign. Yeah. There Everybody wants a piece of Regina. <laughs> <laughs> I think Rob fell off his chair. Uh, <laughs> oh, I saw that one coming. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. All right, you you could always go to their food festival. Taste Regina. <laughs> taste. taste Regina. A ta- a, that's their food. A taste of Regina. Oh come on! <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, Damn it! Boy. All right, that's enough. Oh God, Steve and I could go back and forth on this. All I know night. that's the problem. Yeah. You have your own. And we haven't even gone to the on. spring, the spring rain festival. You know, wet Regina. Uh, see there you go you need a spin-off podcast i really do hey you know what i thought you came up somebody came up with a really good idea last week what curtains in regina no shut up (laughs) (laughs) 
If you happen to be in Saskatoon, you're in the wrong hole. <laughs> Bastards. Oh, God. Uh, a bunch of 12 year olds, I tell you. Save it for the anniversary show. Write these down. Uh, we, this is that's, our, that's our forum. Well, this, all these outtakes are the anniversary show. We won't even show up. You can just play all these outtakes. Oh, that's a good idea, actually. Yep. Um, no, what's I going to say? Absolutely derailed me. I don't know. Uh, flip flop, fold the top. I don't know. Of course not. Whatever. Don't. Anyways, okay, let's get out of here. All right. No, Wrap okay. it up. We're... Okay. Uh, hey, Liz. Hey, Rob. Yeah, I know you were tempted to say something right there, weren't you? You just couldn't think of it fast enough. I know, I'm know you. <laughs> She's gone. <laughs> I know. Oh, it's gonna be one of those wraps. It is. It's gonna be. It's gonna be. We're gonna be here a while, boys. Jeez, God. Uh, I have to. I have to get. I have to, I, I keep, now I'm getting flooded with Regina references and I have to get them, <laughs> I have to cleanse and purify and. Right, okay. wash it out. Okay. All right. <laughs> wash it out. <laughs> <laughs> have to wash you Gotta wash Regina. it out. Wash yeah. Regina. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> okay. Liz. Uh, yeah, Rob. Where can people find us? Um, Don't say it. <laughs> find us at hgrancher.com. <laughs> That's the best delivery you've ever given us. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> what else? Oh, they can also drop us an email if they so desire and want to complain uh, at cowbellatbanter.com. <laughs> Hurry up, Steve. Let's get out of here. <laughs> All right. Like... Well, rumor has it that uh, you can find us on social media, although we can't find us on social media. So why should you? <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's some there's some stuff at Twitter. There's some stuff at Facebook. And right. uh, apparently there's going to be a fabulous new reemergence at Instagram. Triumphant return of Instagram. Yeah, and who which... knows, maybe a TikTok channel involving uh, Ryan and a tutu. So stay there tuned for that. Woo. Yay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that is going to about do it for us this week. Big thanks, of course, to Dr. Rihanna Robinson for joining us. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com or call us toll-free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. 